Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. We're going to pick up tonight in Ezekiel chapter 4. It's only here that we get into Ezekiel's ministry proper. The first three chapters, as you remember, focus on this vision that Ezekiel has coupled with a calling. And then chapter 3 had this reiteration of, of the vision and of his calling. And so just remember where he's at right now. He's serving a disciplinary sentence where he's lost the ability or the autonomy to leave his house and go where he please and say the things that he would like. Instead, he's housebound and only leaves it at the commission of the Lord. And he's uh, muzzled spiritually and only able to speak when God gives him a message. Keeping that divine restriction on speech in mind, it's interesting that the first aspects of Ezekiel's ministry don't involve a lot of speech. In fact, depending on how you read the passage, might not involve any speech during at all. It seems like it may be a pantomime. Now, we've seen in other prophets before that the prophets make use of these acted-out signs, these prophetic signs where they actually take a pot, for example, and break it before the elders and then explain what that means. But no one does this more than Ezekiel, and this initial set of signs, if you will, in Ezekiel are so integrated and so complex And then, like I said, possibly without even a provided interpretation, that I would suggest to you the best way to understand what we read here is like performance art. You know those artists who go to a public place and put on an entire artistic display to make a point. That's what we see here uh, with Jeremiah and, or with Ezekiel, excuse me. And as you would expect, it focuses on the impending destruction of Jerusalem, both its siege as well as the inevitable loss, uh, and then the following exile. And all those are intermingled. Let's just take a look here at the first part of it in chapter 4, verse 1. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face towards it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So notice here, Ezekiel's first thing he's called to do is basically play war much like a child would do with his you know, soldiers and toys. He sets up a brick in the middle that has Jerusalem painted on the top of it, probably just an outline of the plans of the city, but recognizable. And then he has small battering rams and maybe even small soldiers, and he's to act out the siege in pantomime in front of his audience. 
And so we talked about last week how many in Jeremiah's audience were anticipating, hoping for, praying for, and to some degree even presuming there was going to be a return to Israel, that all those who were in Babylon would come back to Jerusalem, that Jehoiachin would be put back on the throne, and Ezekiel's first and opening message to these freshly minted exiles is, no, that's not what's going to happen. Judgment is going to come, and so he acts out this siege on Jerusalem. Now, as we move through here, we need to remember that all we are given here in chapter 4 are the instructions. There were occasions in Jeremiah where it would say, and God spoke to Jeremiah and said, go to the people and take a clay plot and cast it and shatter it in front of them. And then we'd get a following passage that said, and so Jeremiah took a pot and before the people, we don't get any of that in Ezekiel ever. Ezekiel's entire book is the word as delivered to Ezekiel. And other people will show up and there will be dialogue But we never get that, and so Ezekiel did as he said, as we would in other places. What that means is we have to kind of think as we go along and put together how all these things are happening, okay? So let me lay some of those pieces now. First, I would suggest to you that this performance art of laying siege against this um, tile with Jerusalem painted on it is probably something he did daily in a public place for a season of time. In fact, as we're going to see, God gives him all at once here a whole litany of daily performances. And so although I doubt there was a sign with times of particular performances out front of whatever public place he was performing, um, it's helpful to keep in mind the things that he does here, he's not doing all the time, but he is doing daily Okay, and so part of that involves laying siege to Jerusalem. Now, one more piece before we move forward that's important to understand. We're going to see uh, that like a one-member band, Ezekiel plays all the parts here, okay? Since he's pantomiming it, sometimes he's going to stand in for Israel. Sometimes he's going to stand in for Babylon, and sometimes he's going to stand in for God, and sometimes those things are all happening at the same time, okay? And then one last piece. There are three levels of messages here. Okay? There is the sin of Ezekiel is going to portray. There is the siege of Jerusalem. And then there is the exile that follows. And we're going to see the imagery is all intermingled and overlapping. Okay? So with all those pieces in mind, he's doing this siege. And then notice verse 4. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign you to a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. Okay, so he says, all right, I want you to lay on your left side and I want you to representatively bear the sin of Israel for 390 days straight. Okay, now, first thing that makes this easier to understand, this is probably not 390 24-hour days. As we're going to see, there's other things that he's supposed to be doing, but for a portion of every day, as part of his public performance, he lays on his side, on his left side, and when it says here that he bears the punishment, he says in verse 4, place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it, or literally upon yourself, Okay. And so the idea here is that he is representatively 
taking the sin of Israel upon his shoulders. And he's doing that not to atone for it, like some of the actions that are taken by the high priests and the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, but just to embody it, to represent it. Okay? And so he's to 390 days in a row lay on his left side to personify this. And then notice verse 6, when you've completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. So 390 days on his left side and then 40 days on his right side. Now, this is one of the most difficult, specific, prophetic uh, oracles in the book of Ezekiel to, to connect with interpretation. Okay. We see here a 390 days somehow attached to the sins of Israel, and we see 40 days somehow attached to the sins of Judah. Okay. Now, oftentimes, like we saw in Jeremiah, we use the house of Israel to talk of the 10 northern tribes, and the house of Judah to talk of the southern tribes. Remember that at this point in time, there is no northern tribes. They've been in Assyria for almost, uh, you know, for generations at this point, and so it's just the southern tribes left. Um, it may be here that he is separating out these two and talking distinctly about the house of Israel and their sin and the house of Judah and their sin. But there is a problem with that, and oftentimes Ezekiel does use these uh, two phrases in close connection synonymously. If you've ever read the Psalms, you know the Psalms are laid out in couplets and reflect a form of Hebrew poetry that we call parallelism because line one is very close to line two. And so it relies heavily on synonyms to say the same thing in a different way. Sometimes those synonyms deepen uh, and sometimes they just poetically provide another lens. In the same way here, house of Israel and house of Judah can be synonymous and may be serving in that place. So that's one complication. Uh, the other has to do with, are we talking about them bearing their punishment or bearing their sin? In other words, is Ezekiel acting out the sin that led to judgment or the consequence of sin? Because in the Hebrew, the word for sin and judgment and sacrifice is all the same word. And so it can be a little confusing. So the question here is two things. Is he talking about Israel twice or Israel and Judah separately? And then is he talking about the past or the past and the future or the future? Okay. This is what I would suggest to you is the best understanding, but I have not read a single commentator who, who doesn't put an asterisk under this and say this is the best understanding, but we're just not sure. The 390 days, if it represents 390 years, is a significant amount of time, of course. In fact, it's long enough for that time to rightly represent one of two things. Both, I think, would be good fits. One would be from the dedication of the temple under Solomon in, first, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 8 uh, to the current present tense day of Ezekiel. Okay, the, the fall under the days of Jehoiachin, uh, Jehoiachin, the date that we saw earlier um, for this year. That is 390 years, nice and round. Okay? Or 
It's also very close, 393 years to be exact, if you start with the beginning of the reign of uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam when the two kingdoms split, okay, to the destruction of Zedekiah's household. Okay? Those dates are a little bit different because Zedekiah's day is still future and Solomon's day goes a little bit further back, but they're, they're about, about the same and they would both stand in and they would represent something we saw extensively in Isaiah and Jeremiah, which is basically that this consequence of destruction of Jerusalem and exile into Babylon is a long-standing punishment that God has been patiently withholding, laying out uh, for the duration of Israel's rebellious history. Okay. So what about the 40-day portion? If you think that the first one deals with the house of Israel, and so you look just at the split of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, again, you get a problem because their entire lifespan ends way before this 390, and they've already been enduring what's going on in Assyria for generations. But, but the hardest one to assign then is the 40, the 40 years. It's hard to draw a, note, a date on a calendar and go, okay, this 40-year period is is the dark days of the house of Judah, of the line of David. It's just hard to point to. What I would suggest to you is that that 40 days is actually future and is talking about the exile itself. Now, you may remember from Jeremiah, 40 days, or in this case, 40 years, represented by 40 days, isn't the entire duration of the exile. Jeremiah was clear that would be 70 years, and Daniel read with clarity, counting on his own calendar, and knew that it was coming to its fulfillment in the 70th year. So how could this 40 years be representative of the judgment that's to fall? What I would suggest to you is that Ezekiel, through this act, is laying out layers of meaning beneath the judgment. And we'll see this throughout Ezekiel, where the explicit message on the surface is one of judgment, but there are glimpses of hope woven into the material. Okay? And there's two things that leads me to believe that. The first is this day-for-a-year phenomenon, where one day represents a year, is not a new biblical idea, but reminds us of when uh, Israel all the way back in the book of Numbers chapter 14, refuses to enter into the promised land. And out of an act of judgment, God is going to kill off the entire adult generation with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And specifically in Numbers 14, 34, it says, for every day the spies were in the land, 40 days, I will keep you in the wilderness 40 years, a year for a day. Okay, the same language we see here. Not only that, but when you add this 390 to 40, you get 430, which is the duration of Israel's uh, detainment in Egypt, okay, starting in the days of Joseph and then all the way through the Exodus, that according to Exodus chapter 12 is 430 years. Now, do you see why that would be a hopeful thing? Because although they're about to go into captivity, although they're about to be under a foreign thumb, uh, there is also a new exodus that is going to spring out of this. Okay? Because we've already studied Isaiah and Jeremiah, that resonates with us, even though we haven't gotten far enough in Ezekiel to validate it, but we will. In fact, Ezekiel is going to explicitly tie the exile 
to God wooing Israel in the wilderness, his language. He's going to bring them back into the wilderness and woo them back into his arms. And so there, Ezekiel explicitly connects these two ideas. Okay, in that case, this 40 is not standing here for 40 exact years, but for a generation. Okay, in the same way that in the book of Numbers, 40 years was enough to kill off the entire adult generation. Here, there is the death of an entire generation. And we talked about in the book of Jeremiah how the 70 years is just that. It's a death sentence for the majority of people who were living in Jerusalem during the siege because they would have to be uh, you know, alive at the age of 71 to even have been alive during the destruction of Jerusalem. So here, I believe that that 40 is standing in to connect intentionally both the sin at the very beginning of Israel's history, the first stubbornness of Israel, you know, only preceded by the golden calf incident, as well as what God did in the wilderness, which was not an end, but significantly also a new beginning. Okay. Now notice here it says in verse 7, and you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and you shall prophesy against the city. Now that's the first time we're told here that he might open his mouth and maybe he does. There are plenty of oracles in Ezekiel aimed at Jerusalem that would be appropriate for him to speak here. Or maybe, again, this is just pantomime of him pointing at the city and speaking over it. But notice again here, he's playing multiple parts. And so he's laying on his side representing Israel, but he's also speaking against Jerusalem representing God's word. And then notice this last line in verse 8, Behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. And so just as we saw earlier, he's not going to have a choice in the matter. He will be stranded on his side. Now again, maybe that means that he is completely frozen on the spot and lays on his side for the entire duration of 390 days. But as we're going to see, there's more things going on, but at the very least, for however long this act lasts, let's just treat Ezekiel like a full-time employee of the Lord, okay? So from when he clocks in at 9 a.m. until 5, he is incapable of uh, not just of getting up, but even rolling over. He is stuck on his side. Either way, the point is going to be clear. But do you see what's missing from this whole section so far? We're reading with understanding what's going on here. But his audience doesn't have it. Right? He's acting these things out, but it is not made explicit or clear the meaning of these things. It reminds me significantly of Jesus' ministry with parables, where the parables provide a great insight if you have the key to the parable. Without the key to the parable, you just may have interest. You might have something to chew on. And so if we look at the life of Ezekiel and we imagine the book of Ezekiel being published late in his life, here is the information to explain this year-long performance art act. Now, I do honestly believe that even though we're not told that Ezekiel did these things, he did these things. And one of the reasons is because the next timestamp we'll get in chapter 8, verse 1, is uh, 14 months after right now, 
which is just long enough for this entire performance plus a one-month vacation. Okay? So it's a fitting timeline. It makes sense that he actually does this. But this isn't all. This talks about the siege. It talks about God's determination to bring judgment. We see those things. But notice verse 9. There's another layer to this uh, demonstration. And you will take wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and emmer and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. So he's given a recipe here to make bread, and we need to understand what this recipe is conveying. It's conveying scarcity. Uh, the idea is that there's not enough of any of these ingredients to make a wheat loaf or even a lentil cake. But you, you have to gather together, you know, from the bottom of the barrel, everything to make this portion. Uh, it's a little bit ironic, but maybe you've seen on grocery store shelves, there's a bread brand called Ezekiel 4.9, who has basically made this the basis of a healthy way to make bread. Uh, but as we'll see, he's going to cook this over excrement, and I don't know if that's part of their recipe or not. It's missing the point of the message here. But the idea is one of scarcity. Remember, a siege means no in or out. It means no access to your fields and to some degree, some of your deeper storage for your grain. And so you may remember during the days of Jeremiah, and he's eating at the king's table, he only gets a loaf of bread a day, and that's all that's available in the city during the siege. Okay? So he's going to go on a siege diet to show what it's going to be like. Now notice here, during the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. Okay. Now, obviously... He doesn't make a single loaf and eat from a single loaf for 390 days. In fact, it's going to tell us how much he eats daily. This again shows that there must be something more going on than him just being stranded on his side unless someone else is doing the cooking. He's daily putting together a, pres uh, um, uh, a lunch for his work day and the lunch is described in this way. In fact, notice verse 10, the food that you eat shall be by weight 20 shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it, and water you shall drink by measure a sixth part of a hen from day to day you shall drink. This is eight ounces. <clears throat> eight ounces of bread and a gulp of water. Okay? This is a starvation diet. This is not enough for Ezekiel to survive on. Now, again, if we are to read this as being 24 hours, all there is to eat, um, then this would have been a significantly hard thing for Ezekiel to do. If it is just limited within the confines of Ezekiel's public life, it's still sending the signal of an appropriate rationing of food that is not sustainable. Okay. Um, verse 12, And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And so the last part of the instructions here, you're to do all the cooking in their sight, on top of human excrement, okay? Now, I mean, let's be really clear here. If this is human excrement, he's not getting it from anyone else, okay? But this is actually where the first time where we see Ezekiel speak up in this, and it's to draw a line in the sand. Notice what he says in verse 13. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I've never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor had tainted meat come into my mouth. Okay, 
two things here. First, notice he says, no, I don't want to do that. And the reason he gives is because he is a faithful Levite. Okay? The things that he says he's never done here are things that were required specifically of the priesthood to maintain their cleanliness for service. And so even though he's not in Jerusalem, even though he doesn't get to serve at the temple, his entire life he has been dedicated to being a good Levite. And much like Peter in the book of Acts, he says, not so, Lord. I don't want to do that. I've always maintained my Levitical uh, law cleanliness, and to eat of this would be defiling. Okay, um, And so... Uh, the second thing I want you to notice here is his concern is not hygienic uh, or even out of embarrassment. It's about keeping the Levitical law, maintaining his uh, ritual purity. Okay. The, second thing, or the third thing I want you to notice here is that the reason he's to do this is to represent not the eating during the siege. Thank you, Richard but the uncleanness of all of Israel after the siege. Because every meal they eat from that point on is not going to be in Israel. Okay? They are going to be in an unclean land, living in the midst of an unclean people, and will be unable to maintain the purity laws of Leviticus. Remember how I told you that there's multiple things going on here? So the food he eats represents the difficulty of siege culture. But the way that he prepares it represents the uncleanness of what happens after the siege, the deportation. Okay? Um, and so he cries out, though, and says, no, I can't do this. And notice God compromises. Then he said to me, verse 15, see, I signed to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. Okay? And we might go, that's kind of weird. It's weird that God condescends or, or allows this compromise to happen. But the reason why it makes sense is because right here in Ezekiel itself, we have the real meaning. Okay? And so it's not going to be a, an unclean act for Ezekiel. It's still a little gross. His fuel is still animal dung, but that doesn't have the purity problem. But since the interpretation is one that he can provide, one that's provided for us, the act is sufficient enough. And so, verse 16, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. If you have an older uh, translation there, it says the staff of bread. Okay? And we encounter that phrase, the staff of bread, in three places, here in Ezekiel, in one of the Psalms, and then in the book of Leviticus. We've talked about the fact since Ezekiel is a Levitical priest, he is very familiar with the book of Leviticus and it shapes a good deal of his language. But the idea here of breaking the staff of bread is one of two things. Okay? It may be staff in terms of authority. Like think of Joseph. right? His rule as second in command in Egypt has direct rule over the bread supply, over the daily bread lines during the famine. A staff is a representation of authority. The word in Hebrew is a bit more broad, okay? And so the other thing that is suggested is that in those days and age, um, people would make their bread with holes in it, and then they would have these sticks that stuck out of the wall, and they would hang their bread on it to keep it away from rodents, 
okay? Kind of like when we make uh, bird feeders that are hard for squirrels to get at, a similar idea, okay? Uh, in other words, there's, there's bagels in these houses, uh, and the staff of bread is, is just saying, you won't have a way to store the bread, you won't even need it, because there won't be any bread. Either way, though, clearly what he's talking about is famine, um, he says, they shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water and look to one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Now, this is, as we've talked about, a siege is a horrible thing. It is an extreme form of punishment. But I want you to remember here that this has not yet come to be. That there is still time and means towards repentance, um, and that it is also effectively then a measure not just of God's judgment, but of Israel's stubbornness. And we saw this personified in King Zedekiah. Ezekiel may be way off in the land of Babylon, but Jeremiah is living, you know, in a basement around the corner from the castle. Zedekiah knows he's there, and he never goes to him in repentance, but only for shortcuts, only for ways out. And so that's the problem. And so we see here this huge performance art piece um, that is going on, but there is one more aspect of it. We've just touched on the exile. We've just touched on the siege uh, but here in chapter 5, verse 1, there's one more thing that happens during this time. And notice what it is, chapter 5, verse 1. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor. Okay? Now, I can't imagine a worse tool in a pinch to shave your face and head than a sword. Okay? It's unyieldy, right? It's, it's too large for the job. To shave you safely, it would have to be incredibly sharp. Um, you know, because the force between swinging a sword at a human stomach and scraping against your skin is very different. Um, and so obviously here, the tool is chosen not because it's so suitable, but because it needs to convey an image. Okay. And basically here, as we're going to see, the sword uh, is going to be God's instrument to do something in Israel. So he's to use it as a barber's razor and pass it over his head and his beard Okay, and so he's to shave his face and head entirely. An abnormal thing for a Jew in his day, one that is usually associated with one of two things. Okay? One, personal grief. Shaving was a sign of mourning and expressing deep grief at loss. And two, it was a sign of shame itself. Okay? Somebody else would shave you to make a mockery of you. Both of those are appropriate to the image here. Okay. And so imagine here on day one of 390 plus 40, so on day one of 430, he stands up and he takes a sword and he shaves himself in front of all the people and then notice what he does next at the end of verse one, take the balances for weighing and divide the hair. So he's to be relatively scientific here. He takes out a scale and he weighs the hair and as we're going to see, he divides it into three exactly equal piles by weight. Verse two, a third part, you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. In a third part, you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. In a third part, you shall scatter to the wind. I will unsheath the sword after them. 
Okay. So he divides it into three things, and, uh, and these three parts each have a different fate. When it says here that he's to burn it in the city, this is the mock Jerusalem that he's made. So just on top of it, he starts a fire and he burns up a third of the hair, representing the death and destruction that's going to come inside the city walls during the siege. And then a third, he's supposed to lay around the city where the siege is on and to use his sword and to hack it into pieces, obviously talking about military deaths. And then finally, he's, take, he's to take a last third and to throw it in the air on a windy day and let the wind carry it away, speaking of those who would be carried into exile. Okay? And so again, he's demonstrating holistically all the things that are going to come upon Jerusalem in judgment. Now, notice all of this is laid out, and then suddenly we get more information in verse 3. And you shall take from these, and you go, hey, wait a minute, from what? He burned a third of it, he chopped up a third of it, and he threw the other to the wind, and suddenly there's more, okay? But obviously he's told up front there's more, and I would suggest to you that one of the reasons it's told to us in this way, as we'll see, is because it is a hidden hope, okay? When you look at what happens to Jerusalem, third die from the siege, a third die in the battle, and a third are exported uh, to, to Babylon. It doesn't seem like there's much left, but notice here this small remnant. He says, verse 3, you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe, and these again you shall take some and cast them in the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. And so he's to take just just a small batch of the exile hairs and hide them in his robe. Okay? And so imagine he plays this out over the course of the day or whatever, and at the end of the day, suddenly there's more hair. Now imagine you've watched this performance all day long. You can see Jerusalem, you can see the siege works, all of that makes sense, you've seen it, you, this is probably pretty gettable, and then suddenly there's this little glimpse of hope. And he holds it up and he presents it to the crowd and then he takes some of that and throws it into the fire as well, right? Even in exile, there is still more judgment to come, but at the end of the day, there is a remnant. And as we'll see, that becomes as important to Ezekiel as it's been to Isaiah and Jeremiah. Okay. Now we have the explanation of sorts, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her, for they have rejected my rules and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because... Now, I want to stop on that word because because it is one of the most um, numerous words in the book of Ezekiel. If you want to ask what is Ezekiel trying to do in his book, he is trying to connect cause and effect. And so the primary way he does that, we'll see it over and over again throughout the book, is to say, because of this, therefore that. Okay, and so here he says, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, even, or I, even I am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. 
Now, remember that during this time, there was at least a small portion of Israel who believed that the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Jewish nation was an impossibility. And they pointed to a couple of reasons. One was, we have the temple. Right? We saw that in Jeremiah, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Another was, they were living in God's holy land, the promised land. Okay. A third was, God had made a covenant with them. And as we're going to see, Ezekiel constantly reminds them that all of those things are officially out of bounds because the temple is defiled because the land is defiled by their high places, because the promises uh, or the covenant had commitments that they needed to keep and did not. And so even here, we see him explaining that what's going to happen is inevitable because it is exactly God being faithful to his word and to his character and to his promises. Verse 9, because of all your abominations. Now that word is another major word, okay? The word there for abominations, toabah, uh, it's second most used place. The book we find it in the second most would be the book of Leviticus. It's a word for, again, uncleanness of a very specific type. It flows through the book of Leviticus, but Ezekiel uses it even more than Leviticus does. It's another one of his major words, and it speaks, again, of something obscene being done in the sight of God. Because of all your abominations, verse 9, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. Okay, speaking of the drastic cannibalism that comes with a siege. He says, and I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things, with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. Okay? And so we see here God saying, because you have defiled these places, I'm going to step out and let this happen. Now, that passivity, as if God uh, refuses to act, is only one way to look at this. As we'll see, God has no problem saying he's the one who's choosing to act and is the primary actor behind all these things. But here, he's basically saying, you say that I will keep you safe. That is not what is going to happen. Okay. Verse 8, my eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, a third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheath the sword after them. Okay. So there we see the full explanation of Ezekiel's pantomime laid out. We are not told here if these are prophecies he gives verbally during that time, or again at a later time, or just written down here, you know, so that, so that people had to read the book to understand the symbolism. But either way, the explanation for what's about to happen to Jerusalem is laid out. Verse 13, thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. That is another phrase that Ezekiel uses extensively. So that you will know. 
so that the nations will know, and they will know that I am the Lord. Again, that language is very common in the Exodus story, but it's used uh, in this pejorative sense, not of Israel in the Exodus story, but of Egypt. But Egypt has forgotten. Egypt has neglected the reality of who God is. And so again, we see this process as not merely being one of punishment, but instructive, one of discipline. Okay. And so he says here, uh, then they'll know that I'm the Lord and I've spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Verse 14, moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt and a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, that's the idea of a staff of bread again, I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And so right up front, Ezekiel's original first assignment is one of unavoidable and intense judgment. Okay. Now that's going to continue as we move into chapter 6 and 7, but we're going to move away from the symbolic actions and into the prophecy proper. Now I want to read without stopping the first seven verses of chapter 6, and then I want to highlight something significant. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, behold, I, even I will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. So notice it was the destruction of Jerusalem. Now we're widening the scope. The mountains of Israel run right down the center of Israel, north to south. Okay, it is the center it is the breadbasket. It is the primary land of Israel itself. But notice here the mountains are being personified because that's where the high places are. Okay, And so it's not just about what was happening in Jerusalem, but throughout the entire land there was this worship of other gods. And so he says he's going to destroy them. Verse 4, your altars shall become desolate. Your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain before your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. I will scatter bones around your altars. In other words, God is going to use the destruction of Israel to desecrate these sacred pagan worship places. These dead bodies and bones would make them no longer holy and usable for worship. Verse 6, whenever you dwell, wherever you dwell, and the city shall be laid waste and the high places ruined so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down and your works wiped out, and the slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so he speaks here of destruction uh, largely, broadly across Israel because of idolatry in every city. And notice it's a cleansing of the land itself of all of these pagan altars and places of worship. Now the reason why I wanted to read that relatively quickly through is because when we look at chapter 5 verse 1 through 6 verse 7, 
there is a bundle of parallels to a single chapter elsewhere in the Bible. When we talk about Ezekiel's use of the book of Leviticus, he doesn't use the whole book equally, but focuses mostly on the second half of the book, which we call the Holiness Code. Here, he draws almost entirely from Leviticus chapter 26. So while what we've just read in chapter 6 and in chapter 5 is still somewhat fresh on our mind, I want to go back and read it through, and I just want you to watch for the verbal parallels between these two passages here in Leviticus chapter 26. Now, ultimately, Leviticus chapter 26 lays out the blessings for obedience and the punishment for curses, much like the end of Deuteronomy does. But notice the language that is used here as we read through this. You shall not make idols for yourself or erect an image or a pillar and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword." I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect." And so these blessings personify a beautiful future tied to obedience. And as we can imagine, the punishments for disobedience are the opposite of those things. And that's where we start to get into familiar territory. Verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, that's a just direct quote we encountered in Ezekiel, spurning statutes, abhorring rules, so that you will not do all of my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heartache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And in spite of this, you will not listen to me. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I'll break the pride of your power, and I'll make the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land not yield their fruit. Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children, another direct quote that we read, and destroy your livestock and make you few in numbers so that the roads will be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. 
And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and she shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. When I break your supply of bread, there's another verbal tie, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall not eat it and be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Again, a direct sigh. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I'll lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled in it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, another direct quote, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Okay. Now, we could keep reading, but let's just pause there. That covers most of the parallels. What is Ezekiel doing here? Again, he's providing an interpretive key to what's going on. By evoking the curses of disobedience in Leviticus, He's directly connecting the dot, not just with cause and effect, sin and judgment, but also the covenant itself. From the beginning, God laid out that this was uh, going to happen in your disobedience, and effectively that makes this judgment an act of God's faithfulness, a way that he is keeping his word. But again, even though he doesn't draw this last element out, there is still a glimmer of hope. For anyone who knows Leviticus 26, all of this is laid out, but notice verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will for their sake Remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. And so he says, even there, I won't give up on the people of Israel, and when they turn to me, I will bring them back into the land. So it's not surprising then, that when we get to chapter 6, verse 8, we see, again, just a glimmer of hope. It's not even hope as much as the fact that the story isn't completely over. Verse 8, Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I've been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after idols. Now, that word idols... Uh, is not the normal word for image or idols, okay? Ezekiel chooses two words instead, one which is rightly and literally translated de de detestable, excuse me, detestable things, 
and then one that rhymes with that, which actually means rolled things, okay? And that is his preferred word, and it is always translated idols in English because it's just too graphic for most Bible translators, okay? The idea of a rolled thing is like human or animal feces, okay? And so he can't even bring himself to use the normal language, but uses derogatory and even scatological language to deride the worship of these things. It's not just an abomination to worship idols. They're unclean inherently in themselves. Okay? That doesn't really come out in the English translation, but a large majority of the times you read idols, it's this word for rolled things. Okay, where were we? Verse, uh, verse 10. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, alas, because of all the ab evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Either here he is called to personify with stomping and clapping, overwhelming grief, or he's just doing his best to get their attention, right? He's just being loud and tumultuous to draw their attention so that they get the point. And it says here, verse 12, he who's far off shall die of pestilence, and he who's near shall fall by the sword, and he who's left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord when their slain lie among their idols around their altars on every high hill and on the mountaintops under every green tree and every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land a desolate waste in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Ribla. Then they will know that I am the Lord." Now, chapter 7 gives us another set of oracles dealing with judgment, and these ones focus not so much on the cause and effect correlation, but the experiential reality of this destruction. Okay? We've talked about it being a siege, we've talked about it in the context of famine, but chapter 7 gives us some other windows to look in and see uh, what this will be like. So chapter 7, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Okay, so it was Jerusalem, then the mountains of Israel, and now it's from edge to edge, from corner to corner, this judgment has come on the land. Verse three, now the end is upon you and I will send my anger upon you and I will judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. The prophets at this point had started to uh, refer both to individual acts of God's judgment as well as the final capital J judgment as the day of the Lord. And we'll see that language used here. But generally, when we read prophecies about the day of the Lord, it is near. In fact, you guys see this on signs sometimes on, on the news, right? The end is what? Near. It is nigh. That's day of the Lord language. But that's not what Ezekiel says, is it? He says the end is now. Okay. He's trying to wake them up, not the fact that judgment is possible, but that it is inevitable. In fact, it is already playing out. Okay. And so, uh, verse 4, And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster 
after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It is awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitants of the land. The time has come. The day is near, the day of tumult, and not of joyful shouting, shouting on the mountains. He says it's going to be loud, there's going to be lots of voices, but not in joy, but in weeping and in screaming. Verse 8, now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations, and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. And so he promises that their judgment here will be total, equal to what they deserve, unrestrained, no longer patient, which is in contrast, obviously, to the restraint and the patience that God has shown for generations of Israel. But now they're at the end of God's patience. Now they're at the end of uh, of God's restraint. Verse 10, behold the day. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. And so see what he sees here? He says, basically, your sin has fully germinated and borne fruit. It was just, you know, a vine. And then the leaves came forth. And now the fruit has come into bud. Verse uh, 11 continues, none of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come, the day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. And so here he says two things. He says, first, class distinctions are over. Don't worry if you're in the high or in the low, all of that is now meaningless. And he says, second, don't worry about money because you won't have anything to do with your silver and your gold. He says, uh, there will be no wealth or preeminence. Verse 12, the time has come, the day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for the wrath is upon all their multitude. Notice this in verse 13. For the seller shall not return what he has sold while they live. That's referring to the practice of jubilee. If a person in Israel had to sell their land for debt reasons, they knew that every 50 years that land would revert to the family name. But no such hope for those who sell from this point, okay? Because they won't be in the land the next Jubilee. In fact, here he lays out an, an opposite of Jubilee, where instead of, um, you know, poverty and wealth being equalized and restored, everybody is just brought to poverty and it no longer matters. He says, for the vision concerns all the multitude, it shall not turn back because of the iniquity, none can maintain his life. Verse 14, they've blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. Okay, so the idea here is they're going to prepare for war and they might as well, but it's not going to mean anything. Okay, there's not going to be, uh, you know, any skirmish that leads anywhere. Verse 15, the sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who's in the field dies by the sword, and him who's in the city, famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they'll be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each over his iniquity. All hands are feeble and all knees turn to water. Again, another explicit expression hidden there. 
wet themselves is when it, what it means when it says their knees turn to water. It's not just shaky knees, but, but they actually lose control over their bladders. Um, verse 18, they put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on all their faces and baldness on their heads. Then notice this in verse 19, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Now he's going to move on in just a second and say, to use this image of silver and gold and talk about their idols, right? Because some of the silver and gold they own are household gods that they've had made out of silver and gold, which could not save them, and now they know it. But also the idea here is one of, um, of the economics of a siege, okay? When things go under a siege, the, the inflation of food is such that even, you know, your precious heirlooms can't get you through the day and nobody wants them because they can't eat your precious heirlooms, right? It's speaking of desperation. Now this can feel distance from us because, because this judgment that's being talked about here is so specific. It's an 18-month siege of Jerusalem. But the idea here of how judgment removes status and wealth is a broad one that's worth recognizing, okay? Uh, Psalm 49 talks specifically about the wealthy in the context of standing before God in judgment and the foolishness of, talk, uh, of trusting in wealth. Listen to what it says here. <clears throat> so here in verse 7, truly no man can ransom another or give God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So maybe you'll never need to recognize that your money is not enough to save your life because of a siege. But if money is your ultimate trust, recognize it will not sustain your life. It will not keep you from the pit. It will not make you live forever. It will not redeem your soul from the Lord. And then notice in verse 16, <clears throat> Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. And so there is a parallel to be drawn here uh, in just the total reality of standing before God and the failure of our status. You know, um, God doesn't care if you drive a Lexus or if you have a membership at the local country club. Uh, your wealth is not going to buy your way into heaven or keep you out of hell. And in that sense, there is a parallel recognition here, you know. Um, maybe to take a more contemporary illustration that at least we can put our shoes in. What do you do when you're on the Titanic and it's sinking? What do you grab? What do you spend the time digging around your drawers for? Right? It changes your value system when you realize how significant, how significantly we're on the cusp of danger and even death. Um, but the truth is, that's where all of us live. The psalmist says, man who lives without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Understanding means recognizing the fact that our life is fragile and temporary. And that the things that can, you know, get us through 
one thing or over one hill or under another or can enter into one club or can impress this group of people that none of it has significance outside of that place. But like I said, he moves on here. He starts by talking the economy and then he moves appropriately right into idolatry. Back in verse 19, they cast their silver in the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and their gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. That last line is intriguing. He says, the wealth led to sin, but it also covered up the solution, right? It's like, um, it's like not realizing that you're enslaved because your chains are made in gold or because the way that you're anchored to the prison wall is hidden by rich robes, right? The idea here is that they could have had what they needed to get through this judgment. It was ready and available for them, but instead they chose wealth they chose idolatry verse 20 his beautiful ornament they used for pride and they made their abominable images and detestable things of it therefore I make it an unclean thing to them they took one of God's good gifts and they turned it into an idolatrous worship and I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey and to the wicked of the earth for spoil and they shall profane it I will turn my face from them and they shall profane my treasured place Robbers shall enter and profane it. Remember, one of the things in Jerusalem that was most significantly filled with precious metals was the temple itself. It was there to adorn and rightly represent God's goodness and his beauty and his worth. And he says, but I'm going to let the nations take it. I'm going to let them defile it. I'm going to let them dismantle it (coughs) because it's already been profaned. Finally, here in verse 23, forge a chain For the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. For the most part here, Ezekiel's been talking about (coughs) vertical sins. Sins of blasphemy and idolatry and bad worship. Here, he starts to talk about his horizontal ones. Violence and injustice. (coughs) And like all the other prophets, he puts them together. He recognizes there's a relationship between the two. Verse 24 I will bring the worst of the nations to take possessions of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. Have you ever had such a bad week that you ask yourself, what else could happen, right? Or or you, you're almost wincing, you know, like a dog that's been hit before, just waiting for the hammer to drop again. That's the attitude that is going to be in Israel. And again, remember that that is a difficult gift, but a gift nonetheless. Because now they can't take their shortcut ways of seeing through this and going, and this is just a blip on the radar. God has good things for us. We are his people, etc., etc. It's finally going to set in for, that this is for real. Notice here, they seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. In other words, all of their support structure, all of their leadership is just going to melt. None of it will be able to resist God's judgment. 
According to their way, I will do to them. And according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And so again, all of this is rooted in two things. One is sin and consequence. As they deserve, in full and just measure, God will bring judgment. And then second, so that they may know that he is God, so that they may be reminded of who he is. Now, it's an interesting thing that when you go back to the Exodus and you look at that language of so that, so that you may know, so that Pharaoh may know, so that Egypt may know, so that all Israel, so that all the nations would know, that plays out in two different ways. What is it that brings the knowledge of who God is to Israel in Egypt? It's their redemption. It's this mighty outstretched arm on their behalf that delivers them from a powerful enemy. But those acts are also acts of judgment on Egypt so that they may know. And the truth is, Israel's had a long history of redemptive revelation, showing who God is. But now they're going to experience the other side of it. Um, Somewhat sadly, or maybe even ironically, now the only way that God can make himself known, the only card he has left in his hand to play, is the card of judgment. But the goal is the same, so that they would see who he really is and understand uh, you know, the, the reality and the tenor of their relationship. And as we'll see in Ezekiel, so that the relationship can be restored. Or as we saw in Leviticus 26, even at that point, although you have forsaken our covenant and I have kept it by bringing judgment upon you, I will not forsake you entirely, but will keep the covenant. I still have plans for you. And so intermingled in these opening messages of Ezekiel are the facts that we're already familiar with, the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of Babylon, but also this overarching story of sin and judgment and grace and redemption. And more of that will play out as we continue our study in the book of Ezekiel next week. Let's pray. Father, I think I can say with confidence that all of us maybe right now, but definitely throughout our lives, have prayed that we might know you more and know you better. And we thank you, Lord, for all of the places that you bring that knowledge to us, and it's a knowledge of your mercy and of your goodness, your grace, and your patience. But we desire to know you so much, Lord, even if it requires your discipline. We ask that you would bring it. And we know, Lord, we don't stand in the same place that Israel does because we stand on the other side of this tremendous salvic act of the only Son of God who took all of the judgment upon his shoulders, who bore all of the justice, who exhausted your righteous anger. But we do know, Lord, uh, that sin blinds. And we do know that sin creates distance and it cultivates a foolishness and a falseness in our lives. And we would rather know you. And so we pray tonight, Lord, even if we have to do it, you know, with fear and trepidation, whatever it takes, Lord, continue to reveal yourself to us, to our friends, to our family, to our nation. But we pray, Lord, that that knowledge would be productive, that you know, that it would be the kindness of God that leads to repentance and even your acts of judgment coupled with your mercy would draw people to know you 
as the God who forgives, as the God who desires to make them your children, as the God who paid the full penalty on our behalf and invites us into eternal life, which is to know you and your son whom you have sent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.